I didn't necessarily idolize the notion of being a criminal, being an outlaw. This is Ed. My name is Ed Boley, and I grew up here in Atlanta. Ed was raised in a stable, happy home. He teaches Sunday school. He's a pretty unassuming guy in person. Do all the things that I can to mentor youth and talk where I can to, to try to motivate people, not only to do cool things, but to make good decisions. He's not somebody you'd expect to be a criminal. But one day in 2013, on his way to work, Ed realized that's exactly what he was about to become. Like, I am not only planning something that I know is illegal, but that could very easily put me in jail for a considerable amount of time. You know, I'm having to tell my loved ones that, you know, this is the riskiest thing that I've ever done. Because when Ed realized that what he wanted more than anything in the world was to do something that just might land him in jail, he went ahead and did it. From SB Nation, this is It Seemed Smart, a series of stories from the world of sports that seemed smart to somebody at the time. I'm Spencer Hall. And I'm Holly Anderson. Today's bright idea, Ed Bolian and the world record cannonball run. 28 hours and 50 minutes of straight driving from New York to Los Angeles. 3,000 miles, averaging 100 miles an hour on open public roads without the knowledge or cooperation of anyone along the way, Ed Bolian broke 16 different states' laws. But let's back up a bit. As a kid, Ed was obsessed with cars and speed. I came home one day, I was talking to my father, and I said, hey, wouldn't it be awesome if a bunch of people in all sorts of cars just decided to see which one was faster from, like, point to point, like, across the country? And he said, oh, yeah, Cannonball. They've been doing that for, like, 40 years. That sounds like you. And a kid who was really into fast cars at the time would have known the name Brock Yates. I do not know the name Brock Yates. Okay, so... Brock Yates was a lot of things. He was the editor of Car and Driver. He was a writer who primarily wrote about cars. He was kind of a proto-libertarian, at least when it came to speed limits. And he came up with the idea for a transcontinental race in 1971. And he was the guy who ran it for the first time in a van. This is the story of an average guy and a beautiful girl. Hi. Don't tell me your name. I'll just call you Beauty. You must be a sensitive person. I bet you're a fan of Rod McEwen. So the movie Cannonball Run is based on his actual antics. Captain Chaos. Been a cop long. And a family doctor. Come on right here. And how they all set out one day in an ambulance from New York to California at 150 miles per hour. California. Yates had written a book about Cannonball that he released in 2001 that obviously I immediately went out and read. And in the epilogue, he said, you know, I don't think it can be beaten. Ed grows up, goes to school. He gets a degree in public policy. He runs a successful business. He starts a YouTube channel where people tell stories about cars. Fast cars are much more than an interest to him. All the while privately, Ed is plotting. He's preparing to take a shot at the cannonball run. I knew that just being known for this could be, it could keep me from future employment. Which Ed got, he totally understood. 
It was a potential cost. So was getting arrested or losing his license or even jail. The dangers weren't confined to the drive either. In order to set the record, Ed would have to document it. Which means admitting to doing the race. He would basically be documenting his own confession of a crime. Yeah, and that's not a rational thing to do, is it? No. If rational people were doing this, they'd hit a point where the risk obviously outweighed the reward. That's what rational people would do. Ed, however, realized he was not one of these people. I kind of learned that there was there was definitely something about me that allowed me to push past those limitations, those times where rational people say stop. But Ed wasn't focused on whether he should do it. He was focused on how. He needed a plan. Part one of that plan was very simple. Don't get caught. So how does one go about that, were one so inclined? Well, you start with gear. So much gear. Oh, this is the fun part. Mm-hmm. This is assembling the team. This is the best part of any movie. Yep. This is a montage. In this montage, Ed has a CB and a police scanner. He has multiple iPhones running apps to ID potential speed traps up on the route. Ed didn't trust one radar detector. He had three radar detectors. He had two GPS units to track traffic, and he had two laser jammers to block incoming radar from the police. So Ed is augmenting this highly illegal cross-country race with illegal radar jammers and also backing up from that. In some parts of the country, even radar detectors themselves are illegal, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And the easiest way to avoid all this is not getting caught and stopping as little as possible. That's part two of Ed's plan. At the time that he's preparing for all this, Ed is working at a Lamborghini dealership. The Lamborghini, though, the one he drove every single day as a daily driver, was a non-starter as a cross-country race vehicle. Wouldn't you love to see, like, a Lamborghini in a Subaru ad, though? It'd be spectacular, but it wouldn't get across the country. Getting stuck on a rock the size of a softball? (laughs) Ed could go as fast as he wanted to, and none of it would matter. Not if he hit a softball or whatever. If he'd come to a dead stop every two hours for gas. Yeah, even not speeding, the cops are going to notice you in that kind of vehicle. Mm Mm-hmm, because it gets about 15 miles per gallon, and it's highly visible and really loud. So Ed's looking for something bigger, more efficient, more straightforward, for lack of a better word. Mm Mm-hmm. He needs a car with big shocks. He needs a car with suspension. He needs a car that can handle what he needed it to handle. And whatever he drives, he's basically going to ruin, right? I decided to use a Mercedes CL55 AMG, a really high-performance sort of cue car or like a James Bond-style car was more appropriate because we really need something that sort of flies under the radar, is fast but is also comfortable, has a strong payload to carry the extra fuel we wanted and things like that. And it was sort of aging at that point. It was an eight-year-old car as a 2004, but the more modern AMG cars weren't nearly as reliable or considerably more expensive without any horsepower or real performance gain. And so that was the right choice. The 23-gallon gas tank was good. The big active suspension, the whole system of springs and struts and supports between the wheels and the car was better because Ed needed a car that could take extra weight. Extra weight from what? As in the extra weight from stuffing the trunk with two 22-gallon gas tanks. 
So in addition to everything that we've already listed that could go wrong on this expedition, Ed will also be piloting a rolling bomb cross-country? Yes, rolling gasoline bomb to be specific if they do it wrong. Oh, terrific. Ed also needed room for his equipment, for his co-drivers, for the cooler. For the cooler? Yeah, the cooler. For snacks? No, to tell the police he was delivering a human heart for donation and show them what was in the cooler if necessary. Totally normal thing to do, Ed. This is part three, what to do if the unthinkable happened and they got caught. I'd gone to a local slaughterhouse and gotten three uh, pig's hearts. And I had made some graphic design work of this transcon, transplant, transport idea, saying that we had to take these special hearts, multiple of which to save some high-profile person in Los Angeles because they couldn't be flown because of some probably cyst issue from the pressurization of the cabin. And I had them all in a cooler and neatly packaged. He was actually going to do this. Did he end up using the pig hearts? A conversation with a cop changed his mind. The cop said if they got caught, to just admit to what they were doing. Because most cops would probably think it was cool. Might even give him an escort on the way out of their jurisdiction. It helps here that Ed is a rich-looking white dude. There is that. There was what I'll also call the radical acceptance of risk. So, of course, of these countermeasures that we deployed, some of them were legal in some states, some were not legal in all states, some were not legal in particular areas of the drive. We sort of had to realize that not getting caught was very critical to what we were doing. So you couldn't just say, well, let's avoid the things that we're going to get in extra trouble with here. You really had to say, it's just time to go for it. Eventually, I just had to say, look, I have to drive over 100 miles an hour pretty much the whole time. And there is no state where they're just kind of okay with you going 100 miles an hour. And there's really no state where the penalty for going 100 or 150 is all that much different. So bad and really bad here are, legally speaking, the same thing. Yeah, getting caught is the real problem. And the best way to not get caught is to encounter as few people as possible on the road. This gets to part four. Timing. Ed knew he had to try the Cannonball Run on a weekend when traffic was lighter. Ed also knew he would have to start out at night from New York City, where there would be the fewest people on the road through the most densely populated stretches of the run. Summer was out. There's too many tourists. Winter was out because of the weather. He would opt for fall. The thing that gave him the final push? Impending fatherhood. My wife was dying to have a kid. I was not terribly wild about the idea, but I finally said, you know, all right, if we're going to do this, I'd certainly rather dispense with this goal prior. She stood beside me the entire time and just said, you know, look, I get this as part of you. I get this is something you want to do. Mostly just be safe, obviously, and, you know, get it over with. Behind every great man, there is a woman waiting at home with an envelope of bail money. Right. So Ed kisses his wife goodbye and heads to New York with whom? So Ed wanted three people in the car to make sure everyone stayed awake. That's Ed, another driver he could trust, and a third to run support from the back seat. He's got a friend to drive, Dave Black. Three days before the run, though, Ed still didn't have a third. At the last second, Ed got a response from a Georgia Tech student on Facebook, Dan Huang, who jumped in at the last second to sit in the back seat. There's almost always... One person that is so crazy and committed that they put the entire thing together. And then there's another person that doesn't exactly know what they've agreed to do. And we were the most extreme example 
of that. And that was that. All they had to do now was go to New York, turn left, and go fast until they hit the Pacific Ocean without getting arrested, crashing, blowing the engine on the car. They were about to drive at its limits for 30 hours straight. Ed Bolian put tens of thousands of dollars, his livelihood, and over 10 obsessive years of planning into a Mercedes CL55 AMG. Then, on Saturday, October 19th, he drove all of it out of the Red Ball garage in New York and hit the gas heading west. We ended up leaving at 9.55 p.m., and the idea was you want to get out of the city kind of after most of the evening's events have happened, but you also want to get through St. Louis before everybody's woken up to go to church. And that's a pretty wild thing to think about, but that's uh, given the speeds that you travel, that's how it works. They got out of New York City in 12 minutes. New Jersey didn't take much longer. They blasted through Pennsylvania, at one point hitting 140 miles per hour. And nobody caught them? Well, they had a little help at the start. We also sent out a scout about two hours ahead of us that we kept a call live with. And we had kind of given them instructions, you know, just kind of drive the speed limit, keep an eye on weather, keep an eye on traffic, keep an eye if there's anything like a pothole or something we really need to be attentive of. And if you do see a cop, particularly as we get really close, pull over and start talking to them to ask for directions. And so that they'd be distracted. See, this is why Cannonball Run, the movie, feels made up in places, and it is, but parts of Cannonball Run that seem the most unreal were part of this real story. No, for a while, this real-life Cannonball Run is exactly like the movie. There's a little cabal of good-natured outlaws trying to break a crazy speed record and not get caught by Johnny Law, right? They've got help, right? There's some things they don't have. They don't have Jackie Chan, right? They don't have Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. And they're driving on a road with actual workaday driving people who, my God, I'd be mad if one of these guys was behind me. It turns out that real-life motorists, way less impressed with the whole adventure. We saw them as we passed point, flick us off, and pick up their cell phones to call the cops. Truckers were even trickier. If two were blocking the whole highway, Ed and his guys would call up pretending to be another truck. The truckers would oblige and let them pass, but when they ripped by in a Mercedes, the truckers would get furious. They met their first cop up close in Ohio. When I saw him a uh, good ways out and he, you know, well beyond what he could have measured our speed at, and I said, brakes, brakes, brakes. And uh, Dave goes, he was driving, he goes, oh yeah, I see their brakes. I said, no, no, that's a cop. And right at that point, we passed him going 130. And Dave just slams on the brakes. But as we go past, I see him watching some video on his computer in the middle of the median in the middle of the night and uh, didn't notice us go by. They get lucky. They get so lucky. Insanely lucky. And they keep moving. Even with the cop scare, Ed and his crew clear Ohio at a moving average of 108. They get faster. They blur through Indiana at an average of 110 miles per hour. I recommend this. They clear to Illinois at 117 miles per hour. They get to a crucial marker in the cannonball run. St. Louis, Missouri. So what's special about St. Louis? Well, drivers use the Gateway Arch as a timing point. If the daylight is just behind it, you've got kind of a silhouetted arch, then a driver would know that they were making good time. But if you could see it in full sunlight, then the driver would know that they were behind schedule and losing ground. So this gigantic American monument, this giant weird statue thing, is serving as like a sundial at the midpoint? Yeah, yeah. They're just kind of druids driving past the American Stonehenge, right? I like that. We remember seeing all the stories and hearing the tales of people coming through St. Louis as the sun's coming up over the arch, and it was pitch black. 
when we went through there. So we were well ahead of schedule. In fact, we kind of learned early on that we were averaging like way faster than we thought we were going to and certainly than we really needed to. They're alone. After a while, everyone in the car gets hyper-focused. Like white line fever? Yeah, but in the good sense. The dynamic in the car was very much like, you know, all right, uh, you're clear on the left, pass this truck, floor it, get up there, go, go, go. You're clear, you're clear. There's nobody on this entrance ramp. It was that kind of dialogue that was just constant throughout the, the drive. Strangely, and I, I don't ever expect anyone to believe me as I say this, it was some of the safest feeling time I've ever spent on a road. The three of them do talk a little. They switch fuel in and out of the backup tanks. They talk about upcoming traffic, radioing ahead. Like we said earlier, for about the first half of the country, they have a few scout cars running ahead to let them know about construction, cops, or potholes. Otherwise, it's just them. Did you have any music on? Not at all. No music at all. So just road sound and communication the whole time? Yeah, just tire and wind noise. Every state has a speed limit and laws around that. Every city and every county has variable and sometimes draconian laws and cops to enforce them. All of them overlapping and placed across this whole map of the United States they're zipping through at 100 miles per hour. They're making this big layer cake traffic violations. Remember, they have to document all of this and admit to it at one point if they want the record. And along with that, admit to endangering the lives of everyone they encounter on the way, even marginally. Yeah, Ed knew that from the start, that the jeopardy they were putting themselves in wasn't theirs alone. I knew that none of us were willing to take a risk that felt like we were imposing an unnecessary risk on someone else. And I never, ever felt like we were anywhere close to that. I mean, we were so alert. And I, again, I don't expect anybody to believe me. I mean, it, it's one of those things. I wouldn't believe someone who said this were it not me. This is sounding uncannily like, listen, I'm a better driver when I'm drunk. I know everybody else isn't, but me, I'm good. It, it does. And I don't think you get around that. There's no. a point where Ed, when talking about this, can only go so far in admitting he's doing the utmost he can do to do something irrational and illegal in the cleanest, most rational way imaginable? Thanks, I guess. The whole idea is to minimize interactions with other cars. And so most of the time, you know, you're not, you're, you're not within 500 feet of another car. Certainly you do have to pass them. I'm, I'm happy to acknowledge that it wasn't the smartest of things I've ever done. The second half of the race is the real test. By the time they hit the Southwest in the desert, Ed was ahead, way, way ahead of the time they needed. Delirium had set in, and all the planning Ed had done, he'd forgotten one very big and obvious thing. The sun, it sets in the West. It almost cost them the attempt, and possibly much more. It should have occurred to us that you drive due West for more than 24 hours, and at some point, you're going to drive straight into the setting sun. You drive, obviously, you're starting to get tired, and the sun is literally on the road in front of you, and it's blinding. We did have one FedEx truck driver run us off the road by total accident in Arizona, and it was murder. There weren't any other cars on the road. 
because everybody else would just stop and get some gas or go to the bathroom or just wait because it wasn't worth it. We were passing a, a couple trucks at about 135 miles an hour, and it was well beyond what I could break to when he cut me off, and it was a much more abrupt move, as FedEx drivers are prone to do. You know, it's the kind of thing you always have to anticipate. The car swerved. They put two wheels off the road, but stayed in one piece. So at this point, they have the record in hand, right? Do they take it easy through the rest of L.A.? What's the plan? Well, the, Ed just doesn't want the record, right? He wants an unbreakable record like Brock Yates's that stood for decades after he initially set it. He wants the unthinkable. But when they hit Los Angeles, Ed puts it to a vote. Either they stay at their current pace, they take that risk. Not inconsiderable, considering that Los Angeles is densely populated, has a lot of different overlapping law enforcement agencies, and traffic. Or they ease off and claim the record they have with a very good but possibly beatable time. Gosh, knowing Ed, I wonder what he's going to pick. Well, he and the guys in the car, it was unanimous. They they dropped the hammer. I keep picturing this Georgia Tech student in the back seat who signed on through a Facebook message and was like, Yeah, sure. Why not at this point? Yeah, social media will get you in all kinds of trouble. So it's almost midnight. They're heading for Santa Monica. Uh, In the movie, things end with a huge blaze of fanfare. There's a character that gets thrown in the ocean. There's champagne. There's a trophy. In real life, how does that match up? Who's there to meet them? Yeah, Burt Reynolds, Farrah Fawcett, an ejection seat going off, right? Hoopla and fanfare. That's not what happens. At 11.46 p.m. in real life, where Ed Bolian sets the record and not Burt Reynolds, 28 hours and 50 minutes after they left New York City, Ed Bolian and his two co-drivers, they just check in for the night. So the finishing point is the Portofino Inn, now called the Portofino Hotel and Marina, that was originally owned by Mary Alice, who was a friend of race car drivers around the country and a friend of Brock Yates. I had so little confidence in our success that I didn't even book a hotel room there until we got to Arizona. Mm -hmm. So we pulled in, took our pictures, had all our metadata, made sure the tracking device was working, had the valet take a picture of us. It's blurry. He had no idea what was going on. Dave wasn't wearing shoes for some reason. I'm not sure why, but we we just pulled up, checked in, and didn't know what to do, honestly. So there's not a party at the finish line? No, there's no party whatsoever at the finish line. Just a valet who took a picture of them. Not to belittle what is an amazing accomplishment at this point in the story, but it sounds like Ed and his guys themselves didn't really expect to get this far. No, this is a good time to point something out. This was supposed to be a test run. They just never encountered a reason to stop. So the test run became the record run. That's even more incredible. Yeah. Now, another question. Would you know what to do if you got something you'd worked on your whole life like that? You you might not know what to do. No. Ed didn't know what to do either. I likened it to growing up, we had this gigantic dog. He was a 232-pound English Mastiff. One day, I heard this thing meowing from behind the house. And I went out, and I saw the dog with his eyes huge. And this cat was in his mouth. And he had finally caught the cat, but he had no clue what to do next. And that's the feeling that I had. This thing I've been chasing for so, so long, I just did. Literally, what do I do? Not a year from now, not five years from now. In the next moment, how do I live my life? Man, we're really, really hungry. Let's go eat some Denny's. 
So no champagne, no party at the finish line, just three guys in a Denny's booth who've been peeing into bottles for 30 hours. What any proper American would do, really. Ed would probably want me to point out, no peeing in bottles. Not only was it awkward, but they could switch drivers every two hours, and they wouldn't lose any time, really, compared to the trouble that peeing into a bottle in a car with two other guys might cause. I stand corrected. And then they went to sleep, woke up, and they told... No one. Wait, so now we're back to the part where they have to confess to breaking the law in order to claim this record. We are definitely back to that part. We did it, and we had kind of agreed that the time was so sensational that we we really didn't want to release it. So we didn't tell anybody. I knew that I needed to show what all the proof was to the journalist or anybody that might want to talk about it. I had one of these in the car. Ed had a GPS unit in the car. And it worked great and had all the data. And so when I got it kind of downloaded and I was looking at it, I was like, wow, like, this is the most incriminating thing that I've ever seen in my life. And I knew I couldn't release it. Ed is talking about the data, the telemetry, all of the evidence that shows how he and his co-drivers drove across the country at over 100 miles per hour for over a day straight. So at this point in the timeline, who knows? There were people who already knew. There was some internet chatter. The first real articles came out online about six weeks later when Ed felt like enough time had passed to start owning up to what they'd done without incurring the wrath of the law too much. And nobody came after them? No one came after them. That cop who told him to ditch the pig hearts and the transplant scheme? He was right. I don't know, man. A pig heart and a cooler is still a terrific conversation starter. 100% agree. But they didn't even need that. They raced across the whole country and felt like they didn't see a soul the whole way. Ed says they saw five speed traps and about a dozen police cars the entire trip. Only about three of those were going the same direction, meaning Ed's crew had to pass them, which they did without incident. They didn't hit terrible traffic or accidents or heavy weather. The car didn't break down. They didn't lose a tire. They got it perfect and handed to them perfectly, too. Ed tried to plan for everything. He'd taken bedpans in the car just in case one of them had to commit the unpardonable sin of going to the bathroom on the road. He turned his own car into a rolling gas bomb to make it all happen. Yet with all that planning, the one thing Ed and anyone else looks at is this. They got insanely lucky. And I'm like, think about all the things that we just had go perfectly. And think about the odds of that happening again. Certainly the odds of it happening again soon. I think if somebody gave me a quarter million dollars in 10 tries, it'd be a coin toss as to whether I'd ever even have a chance. If I'd ever even make it through Indiana before saying, we're off, it's just not going to work. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if either thing happened, if nobody ever comes close. Ironically, that's exactly what Brock Yates said about his record setting time in the cannonball which Ed broke by a huge margin. So has anybody tried since? Has anybody come close to touching the record? Uh, Tried, yes. Come close, no. Did I tell you, Ed still has the car. Does it still run? Oh, yeah, yeah. Ed knows it's ruined. He describes the after effects as the car's patina. It's like an ancient museum urn now. Yeah, it's practically an artifact, although when he's driving it around, it just looks like another Mercedes. He still drives this every day. Yeah, yeah. Like I could be sitting next to Ed in traffic and not know it. Nope, because it has Cannonball World Record written on the trunk with the time and the date and everything on it. And Burt Reynolds airbrushed on the hood? Sadly, no. 
Never figured you for a quitter, Ed. Jonathan Hirsch is our show's producer. Nishat Kurwa is Vox Media's executive producer of audio. Thanks also to Elena Bergeron and Jen Holmes. I'm Spencer Hall. And I'm Holly Anderson. See you soon.